Welcome everyone to Next Gen Talks, the future of policing video podcast series hosted by the National Gen Z and Millennial Community. Our conversation today is called Police Training on Trial. Do officers need more training or is training not the answer? This conversation will unpack how police training or lack of police training has an impact on our communities. My name is Kim Parafina and I am your conversation host. I'm currently in Seattle, Washington, and I'm a student at the University of Washington. Today, we have three wonderful guests joining me. Um, our first guest is the director of the Center for Criminal Justice Research and Training at California State University, Long Beach, Mr. Ron Mark. Thank you for having me, Kim. Our second guest is the executive director of the Institute for Criminal Justice Training Reform, Mr. Randy Shrewsbury. Hi, Kim. Thank you. And last but not least, is the sociology professor and coordinator of the Policing and Social Justice Project at Brooklyn College, Mr. Alex Vitale. Well, thank you all for joining us today to discuss this very important topic. Um, without further ado, we'll just get right into the first question. Why is there no national training standard for police officers in America? And anybody who would like to start, go ahead and jump in. Well, I, uh, I'll jump in to say I don't know um, because uh, I was a police officer um, now, my, started my career almost 31 years ago. Um, and uh, so this was in 89 um, uh, and we were talking about national standards then and the need for national standards. Now, I personally understand that um, that uh, th this can't be blanket standards because I do believe that policing in California is different than policing in Utah, as an example, um, for some things. Uh, but when we talk about use of force, uh, when we talk about like the prohibition of chokeholds or um, uh, uh, things like militarization of policing, I think that we can get guidance from the federal government. Unfortunately, I, I don't know that uh, politically there's been um, a will uh, uh, to be able to do so. My hope is is that you know we since uh, George Floyd's death is that we're having a different conversation about policing in the United States, um, for which politicians themselves um, are are able to kind of look at this more uh, in an abstract view, other than just the tough on crime views, for which maybe uh, there'll be more will from politicians to do so. What the exact standards are, I don't know, um, but but I do think, especially relative to use of force, um, that having some federal guidance, uh, also of course training minimums, um, I, I I think uh, could could go a long way. I see. What are your thoughts on that, Ron? So to touch on top of that, I I think I think that um, Randy is correct. It's more of a political issue than it is a a law enforcement type issue. If you look at you know, where our constitution was developed and you look at, you know, individual states' rights compared to the federal government. Now you throw in there, you know, blue states, red states, local control, federal control. Um, federal government had a difficult time, you know, over the years uh, in enforcing a national speed limit. I don't, and, and I, you're too young to remember that, but uh, Randy and Alex may remember uh, when that, when that tried to go through and they really didn't have the authority to do that. They withheld um, national highway funds to, to try to, uh, Get people in compliance with that. So, I mean, there's some simple things like that um, uh, to develop a national um, uh, um, 
uh, speed limit. Now you're talking about um, uh, policing. Um, that's that's a, that is a political question, and I don't know if we're ever going to get an answer to that. Yes, uh, I agree with with Randy. There's some things that should be standard throughout our nation uh, when it comes to to policing. Use of force would be a classic example of that, um, but. Uh, getting getting the politicians and getting the states to to buy into that and to acquiesce to one national standard that would be the the challenge of uniting this country. So um, good luck on that one. That's really yeah. I think you know it, Ron's right. This is a political problem. It's not an accident that we have this radically decentralized model of policing yeah. with with over eighteen thousand police departments in the United States very different from uh, Europe, Asia, most of the rest of the world that have some form of national police departments where they can centrally manage training, recruitment, uh, assignments to specialized units, et cetera. And the fact is, is that political leaders at the local and state level are incredibly protective of that local control. And it allows them to, to frame policing around a set of missions that speak to local priorities. And so I think, you know, the International Association of Chiefs of Police and the Police Executive Research Forum have tried to articulate some best practices and some national standards, but I think it's going to be a long time until we have some sort of federally mandated, uh, you know, national training requirements. Hmm. Well, I mean, I think you guys have all brought up very interesting points. Just to kind of follow up, do you think it's possible? Like, how should we change the National Training Center for Police Officers if we can? Do you guys happen to have any recommendations, any thoughts on that? Or if you think this is something where it'll take a very long time to do and might not be possible in the next 10 years? To answer that one, I think we're I think we're just not structured to do that. I mean, we couldn't get a national mask mandate, uh, let alone you know. So, so it's very simple things like that. When the federal government says this is what we'd like to happen, uh, individual states will oppose it, and, and we'll end up in the courts, and it'll get dragged on. But I think constitutionally, we were designed to not have a national police force. I think that's what our our founding fathers and I wasn't there, obviously. Uh, we in art set up like other countries where we have just one national police force. So. Um, to get the political buy-in, I, I think would be the challenge. I don't see it happening in my lifetime, uh, Kim. Maybe that's going to be your next mission. I, I also, I, I, I'd like to just say for a moment that I, I don't want us to minimize uh, the power that uh, that that can be had on the state level. Um, so our organization, you know, one of the things that uh, Alex just mentioned is, is that our organization recognizes that there's 18,000 law enforcement agencies in the United States. And um, this is problematic in of itself because then you have 18,000 different policies and procedures, hiring practices, but all of those, except with the exception of Hawaii, um, have uh, a state training um, uh, standards, uh, normally called posts, the uh, peace officer standards and training, um, that gives guidance. So our view of an organization is, is that while, of course, we would support, um, you know, some federal mandates uh, uh, from the federal level, being pragmatic to what Ron said, and uh, I'm, I'm with Ron, I, I don't think that we're necessarily going to see it. 
uh, certainly on the short term, um, is, is that there is a lot of effort that can be made uh, on, on the rules and regulations level, you know, even if we just look at policing as a, as, as a labor standard about uh, how we can increase standards and tighten hiring practices uh, uh, that's distributed by the states. I'll just add like a one last little historical note here. Uh, you know, the reason that we have this uh, constitution that emphasizes states' rights and decentralization, you know, is, is tied to the defense of slavery in the South. And police in the South had a very different mission in some ways than police in the North, which was the management of slavery in, in places like Charleston and Savannah and New Orleans. And they certainly would never have agreed to any federal restrictions on their ability to use police to enforce slavery. And I think that, you know, that legacy remains in place today. And so until we begin to have a kind of deeper deeper reckoning with that history in the attempt to build more national unity, I think this is going to continue to be a problem. Uh, but I also agree with Randy that the creation of these uh, state post standards has certainly helped, but we still see, you know, huge disparities from state to state and, and big disparities in rural versus urban uh, training requirements. I see. Oh, man. Okay. Well, come, going back to Mr. Randy Shrewsbury, I read somewhere that you said, when systemic failures occur at any organization, a logical approach to reform is to examine how employees were trained. Can you break down this quote and speak more to the systemic failures you've perceived in law enforcement training in America? Sure. So um, I, I, I want to speak uh, uh, in detail about that, but 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 I, I, I'm going to steal a little bit of Alex's thunder and also promote his great book, uh, The End of Policing. Um, uh, 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 it, I, I think that first, critically, what we need to do is reduce the footprint for which policing is in our society. Um, uh, it's my view that we're over-policed. Um, we have you know, police officers in schools and, uh, you know, the, the war on drugs has been an abysmal failure. Uh, we've criminalized poverty to degrees, uh, you know, regarding homelessness and panhandling and that sort of thing. So I think that there is a reckoning of prioritization that we need to have uh, with policing. But that being said, is, is that I also believe that there is a functioning role for law enforcement in our community uh, or in our country, especially relative um, especially on the short term, you know, as we fix uh, or hope to fix some societal woes about poverty and mental health and uh, gun control, those kinds of things. Um, and that's going to leave behind a necessity for policing in, in the U.S. So uh, so I, I would like to start off first to say that it's our position that the police just don't receive enough training, um, uh, just as a, as a basic mandate. If we compare policing uh, standards to many other professions uh, with far less uh, responsibility, far less um, uh, of, of consequence for their actions, is that we see far more uh, training standards. Uh, cosmetology is the one that most people kind of point to that we've been talking about for uh, uh, for several years now. In every state in the United States, in every single state in the U.S., cosmetologists are required more training than the police. Um, this is, as again, as a labor standard. This is as a minimum. Um, uh, 
But then we can add in teachers and uh, healthcare workers, uh, massage therapists in some states, um, uh, all have this higher standard uh, that ju that just doesn't match what the responsibilities of policing is. Second is is that when we look internationally at what our counterparts are doing in, uh, especially in other Western cultures, but in over 110 nations that we've looked at, we've only found three countries that have less training standards than the United States, and that's Iraq, Afghanistan, two of which we train, and Papua New Guinea. Uh, most other uh, countries uh, pretty exclusively uh, see this as a two-year, three-year, four-year program. There's even a couple of countries that have a five-year program and one that has a six-year program. I don't know if that's necessary, um, but certainly six to eight months uh, ju just isn't adequate. Uh, and then the next thing that that I would say is is that is what we are having officers focus on. Um, I, I feel like that there is an imbalance um, of of training emphasis on tactical issues. Now, understand for sure when an officer is injured or killed, we need to do whatever we can to ensure that 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 doesn't happen again. There, there's no question to that, and I applaud, you know, what the police have done over the years. Uh, to ensure that that officers remain safe, and and it is, it, it's it's a pretty safe profession, um, uh, e even relative to homicide on the job. There's many professions where you're more likely to be murdered on the job than a police officer. But that being said, is it can't be done at the expense of of uh, uh, what what I would call you know hyper use of force uh, or excessive use of force, where officers. Um, are, are acting faster in a belief because there is a possibility that they could be injured instead of reacting to a probability that an event is going to occur. And I think that that starts at training. We know that our studies are showing that the closer that an officer is to their training, the more likely that they are to be involved in a uh, deadly use of force incident. Yet the further that they're away from their training, the more likely that they're going to be killed um, uh, in the line of duty. So it's it's our uh, position that this is about imbalance uh, that 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 needs to be focused on. So those are the key things. There's there's a bunch more, but those are the key things that we believe that um, uh, that, that that we have a failure uh, in the current uh, system. I see. Ron, do you happen to have any thoughts or any feedback on what Randy just said? I think Randy's correct. I, I don't think we, uh, I think training is imbalanced throughout the, our country, the amount of training we have, and I think it is inadequate. We should give more training. What what, what we're talking about, though, is um, exactly that is how much are we willing to pay for it and how are we going to structure that? It's not as easy as people think when it comes to training law enforcement. Uh, that's one of the things that our center does, and you're dealing with different size agencies, you're dealing with uh, agencies that have personnel shortages, getting people to training, the required types of training. Um, law enforcement has become a dumping ground for things that society doesn't want to deal with. Um, you know, when you talk about dealing with the mentally ill and, and people that need assistance in, in, in this country, um, it's become a law enforcement issue and it should never have been a law enforcement issue. It, it's a, this is a social issue, but our, we refuse to take that on. We refuse to talk about that or come to a solution. You can't take all the people that were at one time housed and say, well, you don't, you shouldn't be here anymore and throw them out on the street and now say somebody deal with them. Um, uh, find find a psychologist, find social workers that are willing to work 
24 hours a day, seven days a week at three o'clock in the morning to respond to these kind of incidences. Um, you know, it's those types of things that, you know, we're asking our law enforcement officers to do, and then we're criticizing them for trying to do it and not giving them the amount of training they need to do that. So, um, uh, it's easy to point blame. Uh, law enforcement has always been the, the tip of the spear, so to speak, because they represent government, but um, there's money out there. And those of us that have worked in government know about waste and um, money can be allocated. I don't, I don't think it's about defunding the police. Um, I think that's a div diversive statement uh, that I personally don't like to hear. Um, you automatically get people defensive when you start saying things like that, whether you're in law enforcement or not. Um, but I do think we need some restructuring and I do think that we need to put some money into some of our social work. We need to, um, you know, we've defunded a lot of those things. We've defunded a lot of, uh, of what our, our communities are responsible for. Um, uh, City of Los Angeles, for instance, has been dealing with a homeless issue for dozens and dozens of years. And every politician that comes in says they're going to do something about it, but it never changes. So, um, you know, where, where does the true problem lie? And it's a lot further up the food chain. And if I may uh, just jump in, uh, sorry, I just want to jump in because Mark made a good point about uh, about defunding uh, the police and the mantra relative to defunding. Uh, I I I personally like reallocate the police, but it, uh, you know police funding, it, but it doesn't uh, doesn't have as strong of a, a saying. But uh, but but what Ron pointed out is really true because what happens is is that when there is budget cuts. Very often, the training division is really, really early uh, on the chopping block. And so one of the things that we recognize is, you know, when we're asked the question, why is it that cosmetologists are required, you know, uh, a year and a half to two years of training for which a police officer is, you know, maybe eight months of training, you know, why, why is there the imbalance? And, and I mean, there's a couple of things, but one of the very obvious one is exactly what Ron talked about, is about the will to be able to have politicians assigning this money uh, as a line item budget to increase spending and training. However, it's our view that our, as a long-term goal is, is that we need to decouple police training from the state altogether. Uh, and I, I'll give an example. If, if I went to work at the district attorney's office, uh, which is an arm of law enforcement, right? Uh, um, uh, the, the DA's office is not going to send me to get my undergrad. They're not going to send me to get my law degree. I got to go to college. Uh, I got to go to law school. And then when I'm done, then, uh, then I can apply, uh, uh, to become a DA and a law enforcement entity. Now, uh, it, if we remove the burden from the state to have to finance the expansion of the basic training, um, then, then we can look at it objectively and say, okay, uh, the, the students, um, uh, you know, are, are, are going to be responsible for it. We have, you know, some incentive programs, that sort of things, because not everyone, you know, would be able to afford, there would obviously be some pushback relative to recruitment. But, but I also think that it would elevate the profession for which that, that is going to counter, um, uh, uh, you know, some of the folks who may who may fall off in the current system as it is. But until we move it away from the state, then I, I, I honestly believe that uh, we're only going to be kind of cutting around the margins about the increase of training. One of the things we've also looked at is over the last 20 years, increases of training on average is only about 10 hours uh, a year. 
uh, in each state. Uh, so we're never really going to get to where we need to be unless um, unless someone else picks up the tab. And my view is, is it needs to be shifted to higher education. I see. Well, that's certainly the way, you know, uh, job training for all professions is going is, is uh, it's being offloaded on students to finance their own training in educational institutions and then uh, and then come to the employer already trained, uh, which has been criticized by, you know, unions and some other groups. But, you know, uh, and Randy, thanks for the uh, shout out. It is much appreciated. Um, you know, my concern is that it, I don't think we have strong evidence that additional better training is going to make a huge difference until we shrink this footprint of policing and shrink it pretty significantly. As long as the elected officials, and, and I agree completely with Ron, that, that police officers are put between a rock and a hard place. And it's it's the and that we have to look up the food chain because our elected officials have told the police not only to be in charge of school discipline and managing homelessness and 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 dealing with mental health response, but also are telling them to wage a war on drugs and a war on terror and a war on crime and a war on gangs. And these missions require contradictory approaches. And then we tell officers to make split-second decisions about where to adjust the dial on which training they're supposed to use. And I think if we dramatically reduce the scope of policing to those things where we can't figure out a non-violent, non-coercive oriented solution, then we could have, I think, a much more productive and robust conversation about how to completely transform policing, whether it's through uh, an expanded academy approach or something that is you know, privatized and decentralized. I mean, I'm open to that conversation. I just really, when we look at the infrastructure of training that exists today, the people doing the training, the mission of the training, uh, it, it's hard to see how making some incremental changes in that is going to change what really happens on the ground in policing, given the political pressure to get rid of that homeless encampment, get those kids off that street corner. You know, as long as those imperatives remain, we're going to produce some of this problematic behavior in policing. So what so, do you think? That should stimulate a response, I would think, from uh, from our other panelists here. Yes, <laughs> you, you guys can go ahead. So, you know, if I, I can, so essentially then we have to admit as a society, our social services system has failed. It's, it's you know, our, our homeless issue, our, our underserved communities, um, you know, we failed in a lot of different ways. Um, once we do that and rebuild those systems, we can reduce the footprint of, of law enforcement. They, they should not be dealing, having to do with the, the homeless population. Um, there are better ways and, and better ways to intervene uh, with youth programs, but those take funding and, and the politicians are gonna have to do that. Um, uh, talking as, uh, uh, speaking what Randy and expanding on what he talked about of expanding law enforcement training, law enforcement training right now as a budget line item is a drop in the bucket. 
are, you know, they, our states do not spend that much money on that. Um, if you look at compared to uh, other things that the states spend on, it's it's nothing. Uh, it, it could easily be increased. Um, and, and whether there's some empirical evidence, whether it will produce uh, better law enforcement officers, uh, reduce death, reduce uh, uses of force, uh, we won't know until we try. Um, uh, it's just a matter of which direction we want to take on first. Well, and uh, if I may jump in, as is, you know, uh, the, the, Alex makes an argument that's difficult uh, to push back on because, and, and and just as Ron said as well, is is that you know we're dealing with societal issues that are asked to be fixed in the criminal justice system that for which the two really don't match up. Um, in 1989, a old Cincinnati captain. Uh, who was an academy commander, said to me or, or to our class, he said, whatever um, illusions you have about policing, let me correct it. He said, what you do is you deal with the three Ds, the drunk, the drugged, and the deranged. Now, calling someone with mental health issues deranged, I understand is you know not politically correct. It was a long time ago. But the point, the advice that he gave uh, there was no other depiction that was more accurate in my experience, 16 years on, you know, in, or uh, 15 years in policing, 16 years working in police departments, even another 15 in the private sector, um, uh, in, the, in the justice system. There's nothing that has been more accurate to that. But one of the things that even me as a young person then, uh, the very first thing that popped in my head is, is that that's fixable, Right. These are issues that are fixable. We can have social programs. Um, and I was far more uh, far more conservative in those days than, than where I find myself today and still recognize that we're talking about issues that are deep rooted into society that uh, is, uh, we're talking about root causes of, of criminality or the responsibilities as Ron talked about that we just keep dumping on the police to fix. We know that in the 1980s, uh, you know, mental health centers across uh, state mental health centers were defunded across the United States by the Reagan administration. And then all of a sudden now uh, we've just shifted to, from a medical care facilities and put them in jail. Um, but to Alex's point is that I agree with you that if we just cl clip around the edges to this, uh, we're not really going to see any difference. We, are, our organization is right now studying uh, if there is a difference between like Connecticut, who has the highest standards versus uh, Louisiana uh, or I'm sorry, Oregon uh, that, that has among the lowest. I mean, there's a, you know, a, a lot to consider because demographics are different, but, um, but we're, we're studying that now to see if, see if there's much of a difference. There's a few things that are kind of popping up that we're seeing early, but I agree with Alex that we've, we've got to be talking about fundamental differences in how we're training the officers. You know, I, I say regularly, if we train officers uh, like soldiers and we dress them like soldiers uh, and we equip them like soldiers, then we should never be surprised that they act like soldiers. And that's uh, that, that's what we've shifted to over the last 25, 30 years. Um, there's a great book, The Rise of the Warrior Cop by Radley Balco, who outlines you know, this rise of militarization and, and policing. Um, I think that there has to be a greater focus on officers understanding, number one, the historical role that policing has had in our country, exactly you know, what Alex uh, mentioned earlier about the roles as, you know, uh, slave catchers, uh, their uh, roles in uh, uh, labor fights uh, in the early turn of the 
uh, 20th century, um, uh, all the way uh, uh, Jim Crow uh, civil rights uh, movements, all the way to today to, uh, you know, someone uh, posed the question of, you know, if, if, if I steal $50 from my employer, they call the police. If the employer steals from me, it's a civil matter, right? So this is defining what uh, uh, what we've relied on police as as a function uh, is, and I think that um, I think that through some levels of uh, of increases in training and refocus in training, we can hit at some of it. But I don't disagree that we have to have some fundamental uh, reprioritization in our country before a lot of these things are going to be fixed. Uh, can I ask you guys a question? Because you're closer to the ground on this than I am. And I I showed my uh, class the documentary, you know, uh, Do Not, I believe it's Do Not Resist is the title about police militarization. And in this, you see examples of some of the most extreme of this kind of shoot first mindset of officer safety training. And there are a lot of people giving this kind of training around the country to police departments, to SWAT teams, to all the rest, including, you know, some really toxic ideology about the world and and the function of police and society. And this is something that's completely under the control of local police departments. It doesn't require any shift in funding one way or the other, that we could just get rid of those people from police training. And yet they persist. So do you, do you have a sense of, of the willingness of the police to actually take this issue on and, and what the, the impediments are to doing so? So, I, Alex, that's a kind of a political issue. Um, we use some of those examples in some of our classes uh, when we teach also. Um, we use a, a slide of a sheriff's apartment in uh, another state uh, that uh, the sheriff thought it was a good idea to to paint the Punisher logo on the front of their police cars, um, you know. But a sheriff's an elected official. Uh, eventually, it was removed. But how do you how do you impact that? How do you create a standard that says no, that's not acceptable? Now, in in this state, I guarantee you that's not acceptable. But in other states, it is. And and we've watched videos uh, that other political officials, some law enforcement, some outside, uh, have made some very different comments. I mean, I believe still there's other parts of this country that still teach about the war of Northern aggression. Um, that <laughs> when, when I say that in classes, people laugh and I said, you know, go look at some history books. There, There's history books that talk about the war of Northern aggression. And what do you, you know, I told that to my kids and they said, what do you, and they're college students, what are you talking about? I said, I'm talking about the civil war that other people have relabeled. So uh, it is, it is, this is a deep, to me, a deep societal issue um, we're a very divisive country right now. Um, you know, I think uh, public service is a noble profession. doesn't matter what it is. And when I get into these discussions with a lot of our college students, I ask them, what have you done to make this a better place? You know, whether it's your, your city, your state, your country, what, you know, what, what have you given up to make this a better place? And when I see blank stares on my faces, I, I, I worry. Um, but so I don't know. So that's a long answer to your question of how do we impact uh, that? I, it's it's deeper than that. It's it's almost a, really a failure of our educational system in, in some aspects. Um, uh, and 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 Alex, and in college, you I'm sure you see that when you have students coming through that 
you can barely read and write. And you know, how did they get there? And where are we passing them on to? And these are the people that are gonna make decisions for us in the future. Um, I worry. I, uh, I, I, I do have an answer uh, to this, Alex, uh, on, on some level and, and Ron, you know, with all respect, I, I, I slightly disagree that this is political. I think this is administrative. Um, is uh, In that same documentary that Alex is mentioning is, is one, of, uh, one of these independent trainers uh, who incidentally has trained more police officers as an individual in the United States than any other person for which he advocates uh, killing first, asking questions later. Uh, uh, in, in the documentary, he tells the students that if they kill someone to rush home and have sex with their partner because it will be the best sex that they ever have. Uh, th- uh, we've seen recently that there was training um, in uh, the same style of training uh, in Kentucky that quoted Hitler and Stalin. Um I think that this is where police chiefs uh, and sheriffs and county commissioners and mayors can put a foot down to say our officers will not attend this kind of training, period. Now, it does raise a little bit of debate because Minneapolis, as an example, they banded what this what is called this warrior style training. Um, And the police union stepped up and said, fine, if uh, if the city won't provide it for you, then we'll do it for you. Um, you know, as a training mechanism, I think that um, I, th- I think that if if we can prohibit uh, facial hair on police officers or how long their hair is on or what uniforms that they're wearing, we can prohibit uh, training that advocates uh, the wholesale killing of people. Um, uh, I, I also believe that this is a grassroots issue as well, and it's why our organization is a little bit different. While we do research that's similar to like maybe PERF or the Chiefs Association or uh, the Institute of, uh, of Police, uh, we're also a grassroots organization because we understand that there has to be pressure that is applied. So one of our goals is, is that when we have one of these uh, uh, type of trainings that that uh, are showing up in our communities that we have put folks from the community demanding that it end. But, but I, I, I would like to say one other thing because this is a broader issue about militarization. And I think that it's where we have to examine uh, how military militaristic talk um, is uh, is just ingrained inside of, of policing, right? We, we call, uh, we call them platoons, right? Um, uh, we, uh, uh, Orange County, I believe, has uh, um, uh, tactical warfare training, right? I mean, uh, as Alex mentioned, we have a war on drugs, we have a war on crime, we have a war on terror. Uh, once again, we're, we are, are inundating these guys into believing that they are soldiers residing inside of the United States as an occupying force, which then in turn makes each one of us um, uh, possible enemy combatants. And when you view the public that way, uh, it, it's my contention is, is that then you're going to have um, officers making decisions based on um, the belief that they are in this war uh, uh, versus, uh, you know, being guardians uh, uh, of safety. I, uh, I, as for one, I mean, you know, George Floyd's case is a little bit different. Um, 
but largely speaking, I, for one, I don't like looking at individual officers uh, and their behaviors in a lot of these instances because I believe that they're acting exactly of what the culture is promoting and what, what they're training to do. So I view this as a much larger structural issue of, of asking, are they a military? Uh, are they at war? And if not, then why are we continuing to use this language and hiring outside people to come in and teach um, you know, warlike tactics. Oh, got quiet. Randy, I, I don't, I don't think we're on, on different page. Well, you call it an administrative decision, but I think those administrative de decisions are, are, are guided by the political decisions that are made. And, Fair uh, enough. you know, chief sheriffs are very political individuals, um, here in California, the, are ravaging about two, three years now on police chiefs. They're they're just not lasting. Um, I can't speak for other states, but I know post training um, really emphasizes not the warrior mindset, but the guardian mindset. It's taught in many, many classes. It's part of curriculum that you can look up on on the post website. Um, but the the term guardian mindset is is first and foremost. Um, but I again, I can't speak for for other parts of our country. Um, and, I, and I know it's different and I'm not making excuses for them, but um, um, there are challenges. I met a, I met a, a, a deputy sheriff from uh, Oahu who they, and they guard our airports flying into Hawaii. Um, uh, and he's got a wife and, and three kids. And with this salary, he, he qualifies for food stamps, which is not right. <laughs> well, so. I, I mean, I would argue that that, that, that that's you know separate. I, I I don't disagree with you. I mean, uh, but 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 I think that there that there are many professions in in our society that are undervalued. Um, uh, my son actually is a teacher uh, who's attending Cal State Long Beach. Uh, he'll be uh, finishing his PhD in about three weeks. Uh, nice. Uh, 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 but 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 I want to talk just a little bit like what you meant, mentioned about um, about California as an example. I'm, you know, I'm here in Los Angeles. Um, if we look at advanced training um, in uh, that post uh, uh, signs off on, there's about 1,100 programs, um, anywhere from investigations to tracking traffic enforcement, drug recognition, um, homicide detective, on and on and on. There's only one program outside of basic training that lasts longer than two weeks. Only one program uh, out of all of these things, and that's SWAT training. Um, so this is what I'm talking about prioritization. When we look at policing, right, that has, a, you know, 40% uh, uh, of homicides are unsolved, um, you know, uh, since 1969, there's a half a million unsolved homicides. Chicago PD released recently that only 5% of sexual assault cases uh, were solved. And what, what someone has sat down and said, you know what, two weeks of training is fine for, for this to become a detective. But if we're going to, but if it's a SWAT officer, if it's, if it's someone that we're teaching to use force, uh, then that's got to be a month-long training. So this is what what I mean by I mean part of the imbalance is uh, for sure and and basic training, but but it extends throughout the career. When we talk about um, uh, uh, continued education, um, the the vast majority of continued education in most states, not all states, but goes goes to use of force. It goes to requalifications of weapons. Is that important? Of course it is. 
but but there has to be a balance as well to these other really really critical topics that um, that that uh, that police are just kind of brushing over uh, or, or the trainers are brushing over for the officers. And just you know, kind of sorry about cutting you off, Alex, but just to kind of jump in here, um, I understand, and this is a very insightful conversation that kind of shows how deep this issue really is. I myself didn't realize how much of our history goes back into this. And then you guys even mentioned the educational system. However, this is still a problem. Um, and it's definitely a problem that we all live in our reality right now. And I understand that it is a very hard issue to actually solve. I don't think, I think you guys are right that it'll take a while to solve. However, how, what can we do about it right now? Like what types of training should police departments focus on so that we have less police violence in black and brown communities? Well, I think, you know, I, I agree with, with Ron, this is mostly a political problem. When we look at, at the, some of the worst examples of the kind of training that they receive, and it's not about the volume of training by itself, right? Because we don't need more of the bad training. And the post-training is obviously got a lot of advantages to it, but then departments are do are supplementing that with these side trainings, which sometimes are like diametrically undercutting what they're learning in the post-training by sending them, for instance, to these SWAT camps and bringing in you know close quarters battle training and things like that. And so I do think there has to be a conversation about political accountability here. Local sheriffs are elected, and that is, I think, where the worst abuses happen. There are efforts to, to, to try to do some political accountability there. Uh, my friend Jessica Pishko uh, runs a newsletter now that's trying to raise awareness about the role of these elected sheriffs, just like we've seen this increased awareness about the role of prosecutors that led to this progressive prosecutor movement where people are using the ballot box to take back control over these abusive prosecutorial systems that we've seen in too many places. And I think we need a similar kind of movement around sheriffs, though it will be difficult because many of these sheriffs are in rural places with very conservative voter bases. But there's also a problem in the big cities. The big cities are, are, are often better, but not always. And they're very insular. And there's no transparency often. So you can have a big city progressive Democratic mayor who has just turned training over to the police department and no one in city government and no one in the community has any idea what's going on in the police academy. And that's got to change. We got to open the door. Maybe some of the outsourcing that Randy's suggesting would at least provide more of that transparency and public accountability if we were doing it in, you know, local community colleges and public universities and involving civilian faculty. The, the problem is when we leave the training entirely up to the police and former police and former military, we lose that crucial civilian accountability. So that would be one of the places that I would start. Thank you. Ron, Randy, do you happen to have any thoughts on this? 
Again, I can only speak for for our state, um, in, and that is, as they both talked about, that's one of the big problems is it is different for every single state. Yeah. Um, Randy, there are longer programs here for advanced officer training. Uh, Post has a, a course called uh, SBSLI. It's a, it's a leadership institute. It's eight months worth of training uh, for sergeants. And, and, you know, being in law enforcement, that's a critical rank. It's a critical level in every agency. Um, they are the they are the supervisors. They are the boots on the ground that are that are you know uh, ensuring that there's a good balance that's placed out there. It's a very intensive program. Uh, it's one of post flagship programs. Uh, but again, you're dealing with a state with over eighty thousand law enforcement officers. We're, we're really three states rolled into one, and, and that's one of the things I, I discovered uh, training here in the state. Um, uh, it's very diverse uh, from rural areas to to big cities. Um, training is great, and we'd love to get our people to, to more training, but then we run into funding issues. We run into staffing issues. Um, I mean, it, the, the list goes on and on. Just saying, hey, this is a great training. Everybody should go to it. It's not that easy to do um, uh, when you've got a department of 25, 30 officers, and you want to train everybody on that agency. How do you get them to that training when the closest site is 150 miles away? What's your training budget look like to try to send somebody out there or send somebody to that agency um, you got to pull people off shift. You have to back them with overtime. Uh, the logistics, really, people don't think about. Um, and uh, it's a bigger problem um, than you would think when it comes to, to training. Uh, Post is a small agency. It's a regulatory agency. They have maybe 150 employees there for, for the entire state of California. And that's an awful lot. Um, dealing with just, just the minimum regulations. Um, some states, I believe Washington is one that has a single police academy. Is that, that correct, right? Um, California has over 45. Um, so those, those, there alone becomes problems and it becomes a, a problematic issue. Uh, and I wish I had an easy solution to that. Um, I could probably retire with that if I had that, uh, that answer. Uh, and thank you uh, for, for, for correcting about uh, uh, the class. Um, uh, uh, here's what my response is. And, and, and by the way, I, I, I understand what you're talking about, especially when we're looking at smaller agencies. I, I, my, the very first department I started with, there was five of us. Um, my sergeant was also the bus, the school bus driver. So, uh, <laughs> uh, I know what it meant for one officer to have to be off that day to go attend training. Um, because that meant that you were paying overtime to someone else, uh, to sit in their spot. But what do nurses do? What do doctors do? What do law firms do? Um, it seems as if that every other profession recognizes, um, and I agree that you know I, I, this isn't just this is talking about the issue of politics of where politicians have to be affording the budgets in order for this to do to do this. We can't just say, well, okay, look, there's, uh, uh, and this is you know something we could talk an entire hour on. But there's and there's 37 states in the United States that allow the police to work with full power, with autonomy, with the powers of arrest and the powers of using deadly force before they attend the academy. Uh, California used to be one um, up until the early 1970s, but uh, Hawaii has no state mandate whatsoever that a police officer is trained in Maui and Honolulu. Those departments do. But the idea that a police officer can go work, um, it, it's on average about a year before they attend training. Number one, it says something about the training, uh, right? If they're able to function a year and they did okay, uh, then we might wanna be examining the training. 
But the argument is is always exactly you know kind of what Ron is rightfully pointing out is is that if if I'm in a department of ten people, um, uh, but, but by the way, I, I think half of the eighteen thousand is departments less than I think twenty people uh, or, or thirty people maybe. Um, but if, if I lose an officer, that that is going to be an enormous expense to the state to to the agency because that means they have to pay overtime until they get that role filled. Uh, small agencies have struggles; they don't have recruitment power, right? I can go to LAPD and start out at you know sixty five thousand. I don't know if that's what they start out with, but you know, much better than uh, you know some small town in 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 San Bernardino or something. Um, uh, but, but but this is in my view has this argument has just been uh, you know is, is circular where we just keep saying well okay I understand you know yes that training is expensive yes it is uh, yeah it, it, it will wreak havoc on our on our payroll budget if we have to pay overtime but I go back to well, there's lots of professions that there's that there are there's issues. There's huge nursing shortages, but we we don't have nurses. We don't go to the hospital, and a nurse says, "I'm I'm going to training next year." Um, uh, so, uh, I know that we have all three of us have been circling back over and over and over about that this is political, and it's because uh, you know to to Ron Ron's point earlier. Right, the mayor is the chief law enforcement officer of the city. Right, I mean he is he's the police chief's boss. Um, the council has to be held to account. Sheriffs have to be held to account to to what their hiring practices are and what their training practices are, and making sure that they have the funding in order to be able to make the expansions or at least even meet the minimums uh, that that are needed. And, and I know that there are some uh, chiefs or some agencies that would love to to help push in that direction to solve those problems is by regionalization, right? You regionalize a group of smaller cities, you, you cut back on your expenses, it, it gives you a larger workforce so you can afford better training, better equipment, but where are they stopped? The, the individual cities, the, the, the politicians want local control and they're not willing to give up that local control. Um, and you know, law enforcement is, is pushed, was a, a push years back just to regionalize communication centers. And that's that's become a very effective way to reduce costs and, and solve some of these problems. But um, a lot of a lot of cities won't won't regionalize. And and because of that, um, it's just it's just another another uh, point to to why I, you know, when I roll when I roll back on this, it's somebody, you're right, about nurses. Um, law enforcement could do it if somebody's willing to write the check and 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 afford that training. And but now we're in the era where where the the battle cries defund the police and politicians are afraid to put any more money toward a police department. So we're in this vicious circle of we have to have the police. Uh, we're afraid to fund them, but we're going to ask them to do more. And I, I don't know. Hopefully you two have an answer for that one and we can dig ourselves out. So yeah, well, I certainly don't think we should be asking them to do more, right? I mean, that's the issue. So, <laughs> so I I think you're right that you can't solve it with the existing calculation. So we we got to change the calculation. So if if we really think that there's a need for additional resources for training, not just fixing the training resources that we already have, my view and I think this is the view of the movement for Black Lives, uh, who I'm in pretty regular conversation with, is that, you know, well, let's start reducing that scope of policing. Let's 
get them out of the mental health business and out of the schools. And then you're going to free up officers. I mean, I just keep thinking about, well, the, the small town with five officers, what exactly are people doing? These towns with two officers, right? Who refuse to regionalize, what are they doing? I hate to interrupt. Uh, This is a really important conversation. However, we are reaching that one hour mark. I wanted to make sure that you guys had everything you wanted to say before we wrap up. However, this is all the time we have for this episode of the Next Gen Talks, the Future of Policing video podcast series. Before we go, I'd really like to thank you all so much to Ron, to Randy, and for Alex for joining us. And thank you for everyone out there watching. We hope you learned as much as we did and that this shows that this problem involves much more than the police, involves a greater scope of people, and we would need a lot of more people to help solve this problem um, and that this isn't just a problem for the police. To wrap up this interview, I'd like to just give our guests one more question. And if that's, if you guys were to give one sentence of what you'd like our viewers to get out of this, please give them now. I just think that, you know, the policing is not going to get better until we dramatically change the scope of what's being asked of them. I see. Ron? I would agree with that. I think, but we're looking at, like we've talked about, this is a societal issue. There's a lot more pieces to this puzzle that really need to be addressed first before we can get down to, you know, the role of of law enforcement in our communities. So um, thank you very much. And Randy? Uh, my, my short answer would be get involved, uh, educate yourself as much as possible uh, about what the issues are, uh, attend town halls, um, uh, demand accountability from the leaders, uh, stand up with, with new ideas and, and um, innovative ways of, of fixing these problems. Well, as you all have heard today, we hope that this conversation inspires you and that everyone here watching, please continue to just this dialogue or these important conversations like these. And please don't be afraid to ask questions and ask officials, ask your professors on what we should do is because there's so many perspectives out there. There's so many perspectives that need to be taken into consideration. And I think you will need all these perspectives in order to find a very conclusive solution. Thank you all.